0: Gary took a kind of tough one, Abimelech, and uh, tonight's kind of a tough one, too, which is Gideon, part two. Abimelech, of course, is Gideon's son, and as we found last week, um, caused all sorts of trouble, Uh, kind of the, he's considered an anti-judge in the book of Judges. He wasn't anointed by God or called by God. He just kind of decided, hey, my dad was a judge, so... Uh, let's just do this like we do kings, and I'll be the next in line, and I'll take over. And uh, so he was kind of a kind of a big mess. And uh, what we're going to do tonight is we're going to go just a step back in time before Abimelech, and maybe we'll get to see some of the um, some of the seeds for that mess that were planted by his father Gideon or Jerubbal, as he was known in the latter years of his life. Uh, so kind of back to where we were um, when we started talking about Gideon, great, great story. Um, Just wish I could cut that story off about 80% of the way because it was perfect um, up until about Yeah, 80% in, the last 20% of Gideon's life, not so great. But when we see Gideon come on the scene, they are, as they often are in the book of Judges, they, meaning Israel, are under an existential threat this time. It is a nation called Midian. Uh, Midian is much stronger than Israel, and Midian is basically acting like a a second-grade bully. You know, they're rolling up to the scrawnier, punier kid and demanding Uh, his lunch money. And that's what they're doing every time Israel has something of worth. You know, the harvest is coming in, uh, the grape harvest, the grain harvest. Midian's going to roll in and take that stuff because they're bigger and they can. And so that's what's going on. And they're they're, uh, obviously committing acts of violence and cruelty to the Israelites. And finally, Israel, who has been living in disobedience and drifting away from God Uh, this finally gets their attention, and they cry out to God for help. And God raises up, as we talked about a couple weeks ago, a very unlikely hero. Um, He is, by his own admission, puny, weak. Um, It's like, God, are you sure you want me? You're calling me a mighty warrior, but what have I done to earn that title? Uh, Of course, we found anyone is a mighty warrior if God is with them and they step out in faith. Uh, But so Midian was tormenting them, and God raises up this unlikely savior, this this Gideon. And uh, through this underdog leader, Gideon, and a very undersized army. Remember how God just cuts the size of the army down to 300 men from thousands and thousands. Um, God uses the undersized leader, the undersized army, to win an amazing victory, to, to push Midian back, to to send them into full retreat. It is quite a sight, um, quite an amazing victory, and clearly God gets the glory from this, because how else could this have been accomplished? And you remember kind of the details, um, the the lanterns and the trumpets and, and the army in the middle of the night uh, of Israel, these 300 guys, army loosely used there, surround Midian, and as the soldiers of Midian are sleeping, they blow the trumpets, they show the torches, Midian freaks out, and they actually do the dirty work themselves. And In pitch darkness, they are cutting themselves down with the sword, thinking that they have been overrun by this massive army of of Israel. Um, And with God's help, what we found out in that story, uh, and I quoted Lord of the Rings a couple weeks ago, uh, this line, but with God's help, Gideon found out what Frodo found out in Lord of the Rings, that even the smallest person can change the course of the future. And Gideon was that person who changed the course of the future, at least for a time, for God's people. They were freed from this oppression, from Midian. They didn't have to worry about having their crops stolen anymore. They were freed also, more importantly, from some of their ideas about themselves and their ability to get things done without God. They were freed from an idea that at least Gideon manifested at the beginning of the story that God has abandoned us that God has left us. They learn, no, God cares deeply about his people and they were freed to realize that our weaknesses don't have to hold us back if we connect to God and we step out in faith. So Gideon becomes a model of leadership, of faith and obedience to God. Well, not so fast. <laughs> Maybe he was all of that for a while. But Gideon's story is the story of a person, a human being like us. And so his story, it's complicated, okay? Now let's start with some of the, shall we say, lesser complications in his story. As they have put Midian in full rout, full retreat, um, a little, yeah, we'll just get into it here. Um, he is pursuing Gideon, leading this pursuit of the kings of Midian now. He encounters the officials of an Israelite town called Succoth, and the leaders, uh, he requests that they would provision his men, and the leaders, the elders of Succoth say, no, we're not going to provision your men. And Gideon says, well, guess what? When I win this next battle and I capture these kings of Midian, I'm going to come back here. I'm going to cut down some, some thorn branches, and I'm going to whip you town leaders in front of everybody with these thorny branches. Okay? Got that? Now, God was with Gideon. Still, but the promise here of, let's call it what it is, revenge, the promise of revenge was driven in Gideon's heart by something other than the Spirit of God. Same thing with another town, a town of Peniel. They declined to help out, to support, to provide provisions to his men, so he promised to come back and make them pay when his mission was finished. So after the victory over Midian, an almost total victory, I mean, they're not any kind of force to be reckoned with Midian for a long time now. Um, So after he crushes Midian, he comes back to Succoth. He has the leaders of the town whipped with thorns and briars. Then he goes to the town of Peniel. He knocks down their tower, their town landmark, to shame them. And he puts the leading men of the town to death by the sword. Okay, Neither of these serve any strategic purpose outside of vengeance. Right? There's no strategic purpose here. Neither of them have been ordained by God. It's just Gideon doing his own thing here. And there, there's clearly pride at work here. Um, I am the leader God called. You did not give me what I asked for, I'm going to make you pay. He felt affronted that they would dare to say no to his request. And so clearly there's some ambition and some vengeance driving Gideon at this part in the story. And then his desire for revenge is also on display when he does capture these two Midianite kings named Zeba and Zalmunna the kings of Midian, and he finds out that they had, not even the kings of Midian, but they had personally been responsible for killing some of Gideon's close relatives, some of his uh, clan tribe members. And so he decides to, to make his punishment on them very, very personal. And he wants to shame them So Gideon doesn't call one of his armed men, one of his soldiers, to kill them. Gideon doesn't pick up a sword himself. He calls one of his sons a boy, a boy named Jether. And he says, Jether, I want you to kill them. I want my my boy to kill them, to shame these mighty leaders of Gideon. But his boy, I love the honesty of the text. His son Jether, who, I don't know, eight, nine years old, just a boy. He's afraid. He's afraid. No, Dad, I want to do this. And so Gideon ends up having to do it himself. He kills them. He takes their, their, their bejeweled, uh, golden-ornamented camels, and he takes all of the jewels and gold off the camels and keeps it for himself. Now, Michael Wilcock, who wrote a, wrote a commentary on the book of Judges, shares this thought. I, I thought it was great. Um, He says, Beware of the gifts of the Spirit without the fruit of the Spirit. Beware the gifts of the Spirit without the fruit of the Spirit. So again, Gideon, kind of taking matters into his own hands. his god-given victories have given him an opportunity to act in some non-god-honoring ways in some kind of selfish ways to be honest and this these are the lesser complications we're going to get to the bigger complications Uh, but really he we see him sort of using the spirit of god instead of how it was in the beginning of the story allowing the spirit of god to use him He's kind of reversed the roles here. Now let's get to the larger complication in his story. Um, It begins to develop here. The people of Israel, they want to make Gideon king. Remember, we are in the season of judges. God raising up deliverers, raising up heroes, raising up these judges for a season. No, they want to make Gideon the king of Israel. Now, that's way out of character here because God is Israel's king. At this point in their history, uh, God is their king. They don't need a human king. Um, but, and certainly not a, a hereditary kingship like Abimelech was wanting where it will just get passed down to the next generation and the next generation. So let's go to the text here. And this is Judges 8, 22 to 28. The Israelites said to Gideon. Now by the way, you're going to think Gideon does a really cool thing here and says no. He does say no. But does he really mean it? I'll just ask you that as we walk through the story. So the, the Israelites said to Gideon, "Rule over us, be our king. you, your son, your grandson. That's how kings work. I heredit. it's a dynasty. Because you have saved us out of the hand of Midian. Who saved them? Gideon saved them. Okay, that's not how I read the story exactly. But, but Gideon told them, no, 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 no. I will not rule over you, nor will my son rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. Okay, all right, tracking with that. And he said, I do have one request. That each of you give me an earring from your share of the plunder. It was the custom of Ishmaelites to wear gold earrings. They answered, we'd be happy to do that. So they spread out a garment, and each man threw a ring from his plunder onto it, and the weight of the gold rings he asked for came to 1,700 shekels. That's a lot of gold. Not counting the ornaments, the pendants, and the purple garments worn by the kings kings of Midian or the chains that were around these ornate chains that were around their camels' necks. Gideon made the gold into an ephod. Talk about what that is in a minute. He placed it, the ephod, in Ophrah, his hometown. All Israel prostituted themselves by worshiping it there and it was or it became a snare to Gideon and his family. Thus Midian was subdued before the Israelites, did not raise its head again. During Gideon's lifetime, the land enjoyed peace 40 years." So, just to kind of walk us through what we just read, yes, Gideon does go on record as saying no to their request for him to be their king. But then, for the rest of his life, Gideon begins acting like a king, and frankly, he begins living like a king. So, you look at this story. Is Gideon a heroic man of faith used by God? Yes, but it's complicated. He has the people give him huge amounts of their plunder. And now remember the victory has been the lord's victory god has done everything in this story despite gideon's weaknesses his status as an underdog and god has very intentionally used this this shrunken miniature army to accomplish these amazing victories so that god himself this is the intention that god gets the glory and now the people are trying to give the glory to this fellow, Gideon. Thank you, Gideon, for winning all these victories. And Gideon is asking the people in return, no, 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 don't make me king, but he is asking them to treat him like the hero of the story. Yeah, give me a cut of your money. Give me a cut of what you collected. Okay. So they oblige. We know that they want him to be king And he knew that, so I know I'm making some steps here. I think they're legit. It looks like he kind of takes advantage of the people's spiritual weakness. It looks like he kind of preys on their desire for him to be king. By saying no but then asking them to afford him the honors and the wealth due a king. Now part of what Gideon does with this pile, and this is where we're getting into the the pretty significant uh uh-ohs of the story, part of what Gideon does with this pile of money, with this pile of gold, is to have a custom-made ephod created for his family, for his hometown. Now, the ephod is to be placed right there in Ophrah. That's his town. So this is the important thing. Well, you know, it's no big deal, right? I mean, just a nice-looking garment or whatever. No, it's a big deal because you get into what is an ephod. Um, It is a very special garment, a a one-of-a-kind, I guess two-of-a-kind after this story. But it was a a one-of-a-kind garment for the high priest, The high priest, who at this time would have been with the tabernacle in the town of Shiloh, not in Ophrah. Okay? So he has this second ephod made to be kept in his place. And on this garment, the garment was a little weird, and we're not exactly sure. I mean, it was beautiful, but the weird part is this Urim and Thummim okay, which, which were on the front of this jewel-encrusted breast piece, the ephod. And they were used, these two jewels were used, we don't know exactly how. They were used to discern the will of God, like yes or no God, you know, and did one of them light up by the power of the Spirit or, or for yes or no, don't know. Were they, it's been speculated, where they kind of held on there and you could kind of maybe spin them. And depending on how they came up, you know, one side or the other, that would be used. To, we, we don't know exactly how the Urim and Thummim were used to discern the will of God, but this was for the high priest and the high priest to use to somehow discern what God wanted for the people. But now Gideon orders this very specialized garment made for him and for his family to be kept in his hometown. So you kind of have to read between the lines here. What is going on here? It looks like Gideon, and from the evidence later in the story when all Israel shows up to worship and bow down to this ephod, it looks like Gideon is, is coming up with an alternative place of worship. Okay, um, He wants to be seen as more than a judge more than a rescuer appointed for God by God to take on the Midianites. He wants to be seen as the spiritual leader of the nation. And while he rejects the title on record of being king, he does want to live in the wealth of kings. So essentially, after the God-given victories over Midian... Gideon uses his popularity to secure his wealth and to secure his status instead of using his popularity and his influence to win the people of God back to God. Okay, So what happens with Gideon? What happens with any heroic figure when a person like this revered by the people respected by admired by the people when this person begins to act like a king and begins showing off an ephod to the people what do you think would happen well predictably the people begin to fall back into idolatry now we talked about the judges cycle and how it gets worse and worse. The people fall further and further. This time, even before the judge dies, the cycle has begun to happen. The people have begun to fall into idolatry. The people have begun to move away from God. And so people from all around Israel come to his house, to his town, to worship to bow down before the ephod and worship. Verse 27, Gideon made the gold into an ephod, which he placed in for his town. All Israel, what? Prostituted themselves by worshiping it there. This time Gideon isn't saying, no, 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 go, no, no, no. We're worshiping there, and it becomes a snare to Gideon and, and to his family, and we... We saw that from Gary last week, to Abimelech. So the judge, the one who was supposed to call people back to God, demonstrate the power of God and the special relationship that Israel is to have with Yahweh, this judge who is supposed to call them away from sinfulness, call them away from idolatry, he actually toward the end of his life seems to lure them back into disobedience and false worship. It's just the way it reads. I wish it did. I wish we could cut off the last 20% of the story, but there it is. He's just a guy. He struggles with the stuff that we struggle with. And we see this the second he passes away. How the seeds have been sown for disobedience. Chapter 8, picking it up in verse 33... No sooner had Gideon died than the Israelites. Now they're going to take this idolatry mainstream. No sooner had Gideon died than the Israelites. Again, prostituted themselves to the Baals. They set up baal Berith as their God and did not remember the Lord their God who had rescued them from the hands of all their enemies on every side. The second he died, this is what happens. And even before he died, we already see this beginning. They're worshiping his ephod. After he dies, they just go worship the Baals, the pagan gods of the local peoples. So again, you have this kind of dichotomy here. Was Gideon a good and godly leader, or was he a self-serving and compromised leader? The answer is Yeah, he was all of that depending on what season of his life you choose to study. He ends up in the New Testament being mentioned in that Hall of Fame, uh, Hebrews 11, Hall of Fame of Faith. You know, he's mentioned in there. Um, So why? Why is he mentioned? Because he was a hero of faith. But... Like all of our human faith heroes, he wasn't perfect. He had flaws. And so in his life, over time, there was a separation growing between the truths that he knew about God, about who God was, and his own selfish ambition that was at work in his heart. Separation was developing. Tim Keller uh, wrote this about Gideon. He said, In making his own copy, the ephod, Gideon essentially sets up his hometown as a rival place of worship. He wants to encourage people to come to him for guidance, to see his hometown as the place where God can be found. Gideon has used god to consolidate his own position instead of using his position to serve and to be used by god so there's a real warning here in gideon's story as there are in other stories that we've been looking at it is a warning that we need to stay humble god's people need to stay humble We need to remember that victory and blessing come through a right relationship with God. But the favor of the Lord, yes, even the favor of the Lord, it can be a stumbling block. It can be misappropriated. It can cause problems for us and our families. A little bit later in their history, King Saul is going to learn this the hard way. He's been anointed by God just like Gideon. You're going to be the leader of my people. And then over time, King Saul tries to take over spiritual leadership roles instead of just king, I'll I'll make the sacrifice. Let's not wait on the priest to show up. I can do this. And when he begins acting unilaterally based on his own judgment instead of the will of God... Saul's got problems. Gideon, the same thing. Finds this out to be true. Switching gears, but I promise there's a point to this. I was reading this week about a really cool, I know you know this fish, right? But it's a really, really cool and unique fish, the puffer fish. And I was reading about the puffer fish this week, and I'm sure you've seen a picture of a puffer fish before. Um, They have this unique ability to, Puff up to suck in water and to grow multiple times their actual size, and it becomes a very powerful defensive device for the pufferfish. So they inflate themselves, uh, and the predators get scared. Now don't mess! Oh, he's a big one. Don't mess with him, right? Um, and so it keeps them safe because it scares off would-be attackers. And also, the pufferfish has uh, within himself a highly um, dangerous toxin, not dangerous to him, but dangerous to to those who would attack him, okay? In fact, here's here's a fun fact. One pufferfish contains roughly enough of this toxin to kill 30 adult humans. Yeah, (laughs) that's pretty deadly stuff. And, by the way, there is no known antidote. At least the article I was reading when it was written, no known antidote. Don't know if that's changed. And I read about the pufferfish, and I just started thinking, you know, we can be toxic too. Pride, this, this inflation of ourselves can become very dangerous. This puffing up of ourselves can be very dangerous, very hazardous to our marriages, to our churches, to business relationships. I want all the credits. I want all the glory. It can be dangerous to our friendships as well. And so I think there's a, a cautionary lesson at the end of Gideon's life. Remember where your strength comes from. Remember where your strength comes from. Remember that you're not God. Remember that you're not God. And remember that your job, my job, our job, is to bring glory to God not to myself, not to ourselves, to, to turn people who are weak and who love to look to human leaders, love to attach themselves to a pastor or a preacher or a president or a lead. They They love to do that, and our job is not to let them do that, but to turn them to God, to turn them to God. John the Baptist, he got this. And his quote, it may be my favorite quote in the Bible that was uttered by a human being. He once said this about his mission on earth. He said in John chapter 3, verse 30, speaking of Jesus, he said, he must become greater. I must become less. Jesus, he needs to grow. He needs to become more famous. He needs to become more worshiped, more loved, more adored. I I need less of that, less and less of that. And so my job in my victories, in my defeats, is to draw attention to the greatness of God and take myself out of the spotlight. So finally tonight, this gets us to the one who did get it right. <laughs> there was this one judge in the Bible, right? And this one judge who, who had exponentially more power than, than the Gideons and the Deborahs and the Samsons. And this one judge, he used his, posses- his position with incredible humility and godliness. And unlike Gideon, a man who was a weak and fallible judge, Jesus is the dwelling place of God. He is the King. He is the Lord of lords. And yet, you look at Jesus. When does he do a miracle in his life to benefit himself? I mean, Satan asked him to do that. Throw yourself off this temple. Do this. Do this. Bring attention to it. He doesn't. Instead, he leverages his power and his position. For the gain of those around him, not for his own gain. The crown he wants. The crown he seeks is a crown of thorns, not a crown of gold. And so he comes, in his own words, Jesus, he comes not to be served, but to serve. And one of the ways I think that Jesus, if we're really honest, I think one of the ways he ministers most powerfully to us is that he helps to save us, that this judge comes along and he helps to rescue us from our own selfishness and our own pride. He uses his power and his position to free us from our smallish, petty, personal cravings for admiration and for applause so that we won't get crushed when we don't get it that we won't develop into a people who need constant affirmation, who need constant applause. And so Jesus frees us from that by modeling a different way. And so in the end, it's, it's not some ephod. It's not some human construct that saves, is it? Jesus is the one who is worthy to be worshiped because Jesus is God and because Jesus laid down his life to save broken down sinners like us. Let's pray together. God, it is, uh, it's an easy and certainly tempting thing to do to just kind of pick apart Gideon to fault find, because your word has clearly given us a lot to work with there. But I pray, Lord, that your spirit will, will cause us to search our own hearts, our own motivations, and to see how we too are drawn to that, to the glory and the wealth perhaps. And I pray that your spirit will call us back to who we are. We are your servants. When all is said and done, we are unworthy servants of yours. And may we, through our words and our actions, may we as a church family here in North Dallas, may we draw people's attention not to ourselves, but to you, the one who can save. We pray this in the name of our Savior, Jesus. Amen. Let's stand together and worship.